0: Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take data and we use it to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this week in South Africa. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, the data point we want to address this week is $250,000. That is the amount of money in the form of bank deposits that is insured by the U.S. government's Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Everything above that amount that's held in banks is uninsured and could face losses, or at least that's the way the system is supposed to work. But when Silicon Valley Bank faced a bank run last week. This is the second biggest bank failure that's ever happened in the United States. It took just a day and a half for it to fall apart the U.S. government stepped in to say that all the deposits at the bank were safe of any amount. Clearly, there was fear that SVB's failure was going to lead to other failures in other banks across the country, maybe even across the world. Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th largest bank in the country, but as its name suggests, it also had a special role in one of America's biggest industries, the tech world of California. So, This has been on everyone's mind in the United States and elsewhere. It was a topic we could not avoid, so let's dig right in. Adam, to what extent exactly was Silicon Valley Bank's failure about the bank's own mismanagement versus the Federal Reserve's interest rates hikes of of recent months? Or is there another factor entirely that I'm overlooking here?
1: Both those factors, Silicon Valley Bank's mismanagement and the Fed's interest rates heights do play a, a key role. But there's a third factor here because this was a bank run and um, and that's the, the depositors. As Matt Klein, my, my friend and co-substacker, commented, this was not so much a bank run by idiots as a bank run by idiots, <laughs> if you get it. So mm-hmm. the, the, the question here really is, what is the behavior of the people who put their money in the bank and and what motivated them to do this or and this you could view this from the bank side how on earth did they imagine they could run a bank with the sort of quality of deposits that they had i mean when we think about bank deposits and we think about the fdic guaranteeing deposits up to 250000 we we tend to think about you know people like the vast majority listening to this podcast like you know regular folks who deposit their paycheck in a bank uh, you know, at the beginning of every month or the end of every month, depending. So retail deposits, if you like. But these made up an absolutely tiny fraction of Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet. Only 2.5% of its uh, deposits qualified for FDIC insurance. So the rest were very large, denominated, so more than 250,000. And largely basically business bank accounts, cash that was coming in from the venture capital funded startups you know, that are the, the mythology of, of Silicon Valley. And when we think of a deposit for a bank, we tend to think of this as being a good thing for the bank. In other words, the bank has gotten cash. But, but another way of thinking about it is that basically a bank is borrowing your deposit. And it's one thing to borrow from folks that get a regular paycheck and then over the course of a month have regular expenses. That's something that a bank manager can basically predict, right? And if you have enough depositors, you can average their behavior out and you have a very good idea of your cash flow over the course of a month. But if you take, as they did, you know, well over $100 billion in deposits from businesses which have basically just chosen to put their big checks they're getting from venture capital or indeed loans from your own bank into the bank account, then that money is much hotter, much more unstable than regular deposits. And what makes this even more terrifying is that these big lumpy deposits that you had that were super flighty, super run risky, were themselves under the influence of an even smaller group of venture capital rainmaker influencers in Silicon Valley. So, so it's almost as though you're running a bank with the deposits from a flighty, skittish, somewhat bitchy high school playground, right? And one moment, every you know the top five or six kids, the most fashionable, the most, most popular kids are saying, we put our money in the bank. And the next moment they're saying, no, it all has to be yanked. It's got to go somewhere else. So it's a Totally toxic depositor side, which the bank then astonishingly decided to invest in US treasuries, which by itself is not a crazy plan because treasuries are safe, except if you're going to counterpart, if you're going to match your deposits with American government assets, you'd think they'd go into short government assets, short-term government assets, which are particularly liquid. So no, instead they took long-term government assets. And that really matters because they're particularly vulnerable to interest rate changes. And as interest rates go up, the value of the bonds goes down because the bond is a promise of the government to pay a certain rate of interest on $100 or $1,000 or whatever. And as the general level of interest rates goes up, of course, any given promise of that type goes down in value relative to what the new level of interest rates is. And so they suffered losses on these, which were predictable. If you think that this huge surge happened in 2021, you know the only way interest rates was going to go from the level that they were at was up, which meant that you were exposed to risk, and that you would expect the bank to hedge, and they didn't hedge it. <laughs> um, so they basically took a huge surge of very flighty short-term loans, which another word for deposits, from incredibly jumpy highly fashion-conscious, mood-driven, highly sensitive, cliquey group of depositors, and put those into $100 billion worth of assets that were in harm's way as the Fed raised interest rates in the face of inflation, and then didn't take out hedges against that risk. So this was absolutely an accident waiting to happen. And it's a combination of Quite strange behavior by the depositors, very bad management on the part of the bank, and it, I think culpable negligence on the part of the regulators.
0: Okay, got it. Wow. So so mistakes across the board. There's a term in British English that I sometimes go across, omni-shambles. I don't know if that applies Yes, there so were less polite
1: like- American analogs to that. Yes. It's, yeah, I uh, was going to say. Yes, there's yes. One, we have a variety uh, uh, of these. I like yeah. to call it, you know, it's not really a poly-crisis. It's like a yeah. poly-screw-up, poly like, you know. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, S snafu, we know the phrases. Like, this is... This cluster, is a... yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. Cluster F, you could uh, fill in the blank yeah. there.
0: But um, but it's a family podcast, I guess, if you... <laughs> I don't know if it is, but... No, it is indeed, uh, yes. Kids listen um, to this show. <laughs> um, but I do want to get more into what exactly the relevance of the Silicon Valley part of this is. What is distinctive about this cluster of businesses that comprises the U.S., tech scene. You've kind of touched on the distinctive culture, but is that just accidental or is there some kind of necessary connection with how the tech scene is run?
1: I think what what it reveals is that it's an astonishingly incestuous network set of relationships, which at one level are quite unbusinesslike in their approach to money, because ultimately I think they think money's cheap and really the thing to do is just get the money together and then throw it at what really matters, which is the technological innovation. And so the less time you spend worrying about boring, mundane things like cash management and the stability of your bank and so on, that's very, very, very old economy. And, you know, the the hot news is really the latest tech innovation, you know, where you get your best the engineers from and so on, how you grow your market. And I think it reflects all of that. I mean, uh, sociologically speaking, I think you might say that what the bank and the other players in the system were all, in a sense, prioritizing. And they do this for business reasons. So at this level, this is not unbusinesslike like behavior at all, is networking. What they're above all prioritizing is the fact that their venture backers, the bank itself, their competitors' rivals, and just in general the ecosystem in which they're in, all use this facility. And that's, that's why you use it. And it would be strange to say, oh, no, I'm going to take my pot of money from you know, some fancy venture capital firm and put it in the regular old bank like Bank of America or something like that. That would just be sort of just odd. It would be countercultural in a way. That's why I kind of alluded, you know, to the to sort of the playground analogy. Um, there's a sense in which this is herd-driven. And herd, you know, we think of that as psychological dysfunction. It, it can be highly functional because it basically means that you're in the right crowd and that means that you're getting maximum information maintaining your contacts. And the bank amplified this, and it's not uncommon after all, by insisting that that if it made loans to firms that they also you know used um, their accounts with the bank as their principal cash deposit account. So there was a degree of lock-in that was achieved. But that only made sense from the point of Silicon Valley Bank, which was exposing itself to very considerable risks by taking these deposits, if what Silicon Valley Bank was prioritizing was its integral role in the growth story of the valley, and that's that seems to be the central organizing idea here—that you know yeah. that for everyone involved, this was simply an essential piece, but a set of, not one that they took terribly seriously in its functional logic in the cash flow of the business world that is business-like, but not in the conventional old-fashioned sense of dealing with its money in a in a in a way that that maximizes return in relation to risk. Because they were running huge risk and appear to have been almost entirely oblivious to it.
0: Just to clarify, I mean a more normal business would be investing more resources in sort of Investigating its own banks that it's working with. I mean, how how does a more normal
1: business operate when it has? Well, you, you uh, bank with a you bank with a bank which is someone who's actually heard of, right? <laughs> I mean, you don't <laughs> okay. outside We're the home. your immediate neighbourhood. You don't you don't go to the, your local mom and pop bank. Um, mm. You go to a big bank. Bigger banks are on the whole more robust. I mean, and it wasn't even obvious whether this one was too big to fail. It turned out that it was not too big, but it was just too well connected to fail. You spread your risk amongst banks. You go to a bank which will actually pay you a sensible rate of interest mm. on the cash that you deposit. Um, Silicon Valley Bank wasn't paying interest on, the, on a huge part mm. of these deposits. Mm. You go to a bank which isn't increasing in size over, you know, by a factor of two or three over a period of eighteen months, because when a bank does that, it's a pretty unhealthy size. A thing for a bank to do. Those are the sorts of moves that you that you make. You don't. Go to the bank, necessarily recommended by your your you know your funder, you know everyone else, because it's a sign that you're too locked in. And and other players like J.P. Morgan had tried to get into this business and and had found it very difficult to break into this this network.
0: <clears throat> Got it. Yeah. Well, it clearly did all work out at the end for the folks using the bank, and and maybe yeah, uh, exactly. It raises the question of whether they were financially illiterate or all too literate, and I guess to get into the government's. Response here. As I mentioned, it has now assured all the depositors that they're going to be made whole. That is contrary to kind of the basic rules that are always described about bank regulation and bank insurance. So, what explains the government's actions here? Does the government just kind of make up the rules as it goes along in a crisis like
1: this? I mean, it can look like that, except that almost all of the rules governing the FDIC, the Fed, and the Treasury have an exception clause built in. Mm. They literally have a rule saying that in exceptional situations you can suspend the ordinary rules. I mean, is that um, just saying there are no rules? I mean, like, no, that's <laughs> saying that you that in exceptional circumstances mm. the terms change. And then what you can do is also limited. So the FDIC, in the event of systemic risk to the entire financial system, can provide insurance for more than just the $250,000. And it's be clear, right, that FDIC is not funded principally by taxpayers, though it may ultimately be backstopped by them. It will levy a tax on the rest of the of the banking system to pay for this. So that's how that exception is is framed, there has to be exceptional circumstances, and then the levy is on the entire banking system. The Fed, under the famous thirteen point three clause of the Federal Reserve Act, can also declare a systemic exception, a crisis. But the facilities that it offers now has to be have to be offered to all banks in the system. So it can't any longer simply do a special purpose deal for a particular bank. And the Treasury, when it piles into a situation like this, has a special reserve fund. It's a really weird historical inheritance of the 1930s. Many of these rules and exceptions go Hmm. back to the 1930s. And it uses a, a slush fund known as the Exchange Stabilization Fund that was set up under the Gold Standard Act of 1934 for providing stability to the American currency after the United States left gold and in this fund have accumulated by this point about 40 billion dollars and the and the beauty of them is they don't need to go to congress to ask for specific approval and appropriation for money so they can use this slush fund but only this slush fund right it's, and it's 40 and of course they can leverage it up in all sorts of ways they went and did it in 2020 especially if they get congress behind them but this is a this is a you know it's a, it's a constrained game a constrained emergency scenario that you can that you can access and, th- and there are reasons for this, um, which are to do, I think, at a very deep level, to do with the the clash, the systematic—I mean, some would say, really systemic—contradiction between, on the one hand, the norms that we would associate with a rule-bound, law-bound system, which require regularity and the ex- lack of exceptions. And the historic experience with capitalism, it actually exists, which is accident prone, you know, systemically unstable, and in a sense, continuously refuses to be contained within whatever set of rules we provide. And so the American rules have the good sense to provide these exception clauses. This is not unknown in constitutional law, right, where you can have temporary dictatorships and, you know, states of exception, states of emergency, in which... For instance, the police can have new powers or the military have new powers or, you know, conventional budget limits are lifted in a you know, less dramatic way. And so this is the financial market economic legislation equivalent of those kind of emergency powers.
0: And just to clarify, this is a subjective standard. There's not like objective criteria
1: that No, there aren't no that's a great question. Yeah. They don't they don't say, you know, the volatility index has to reach a certain level before Mm -hmm. we can do this, or we need to see a you know a 30% sell-off in the stocks of, you know, this index of American banks. So they no, they haven't. That's an interesting point. They haven't they haven't formalized the criteria for defining the crisis. Um, So at that level, look, an element of discretion remains. And it's also a unilateral decision, right? So there's checks and balances in that the Fed and the Treasury or the Fed, the Treasury and the FDIC have to agree with each other, depending on Mm. which particular exception we're talking about. So um, 13.3, I think, requires the Fed and the Treasury to act together so that there is a, a, you know, like with nuclear weapons, there's like a double key.
0: Yeah. This is where economics runs into the world of political philosophy. It reminds me of Carl Schmitt and the states of exception and sovereignty and all of that.
1: Yeah, it really is. It's a case of, I mean, for Schmitt, the idea was that sovereignty has really proved the moment at which you are the power that declares the exception to the rules, right? Sovereignty is not so much in the rule making as in the power to, in the face of historical shocks, declare the exception to that rule. And that's absolutely what central banks, financial regulators, treasury departments do. You know, when somebody says whatever it takes, um, like Mario Draghi famously did in the summer of 2012 in relation to the Eurozone crisis, they are arrogating themselves the, you know, the right to, to make that. I mean, if you think about it, it's become like just this piece of cliche in central bank policy, but, but it's a remarkably radical statement of self-empowerment.
0: Yeah, and Carl Schmidt was talking about war and peace, but I guess in economics terms, this is broadly analogous. Okay, we're going to take a break right here, but when we come back, there will be more on the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and how it affects the fight on inflation. <music> to get to how the government's response relates to the broader economic backdrop. Don't bailouts of this kind, and I know the government is not calling it a bailout, but as far as I can tell, that's pretty much what this is. Doesn't that contradict the entire policy to fight inflation? I mean, how else is the Federal Reserve's rise in interest rates supposed to have an effect on inflation other than through negative events
1: like this, like bank failures and that kind of thing? Yes, this is a, an absolutely fundamental question. You, you put it very well. There is indeed a contradiction here. I mean, a lot of us have been asking the question for a while. The phrase was, you know, what will bend and what will break? And the, the question was, you know, how far can the Fed and all the other central banks navigate a soft or reasonably hard landing, which is you know, bending the economy, bending societal resistance to austerity and fiscal and financial pressure. And at what point do they endanger institutions in doing so? And something's broken, rather important is broken at the heart of a very important tech sector in, you know, the United States economy. So this is, this is a big break. We've seen others, you know, the funding of Sri Lanka, Pakistan's in terrible trouble right now. The world is full of crises. This is the one that's hogging the headlines. And the, really stark thing that's exposed here is the disparity, the huge contrast in the way in which, as you say, this deflationary exercise is discussed, because we were okay, to put it crudely, with a certain sort of unemployment, we were okay with a certain sort of job loss. And after all, there were job losses ripping through the tech sector, as well as factor a relatively small extent so far other parts of the US economy. But that conversation was all very well, right? The, the institutions remain intact. The banks, the businesses all remain intact. They just lay workers off. And the question is exactly how much unemployment do we need? But when it comes to this moment where what's on the line are both jobs and the viability of businesses, what was feared after all was that businesses basically have to shut because they couldn't access their accounts, then all of a sudden it's an exception. We have to do something about it. And so this reveals a kind of double standard, if you like. A bank in the Silicon Valley Bank case, which has 97% business customers, why are they getting this kind of special treatment when the entire aim of policy was in fact to ensure the right level of unemployment to bring inflation down? And de facto, it is now unclear whether any of the central banks, given the trouble that has now rippled through to Europe as well, uh, whether any of the central banks feel confident about their ability to carry on with the tightening moves which have been long advertised and which, you know, in the Fed's case over the last couple of weeks they've been signaling that they're probably going to have to go harder um, but precisely because the labor market was not cooling, quote unquote, which is a euphemism for unemployment was not rising fast enough. So the, 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 the thought was in recent weeks, that they would have to probably do a series of big interest rate increases, so these 50 basis points, half a percentage point increases. And it's not clear now whether they're going to be able to stick to their guns on that. And what we're really discovering at this moment is that the anti-inflationary the interest rate necessitated by the anti-inflationary push might be more than the banking system can stand. In a sense, another way of formulating all of this is that the risk of a hard landing has gone up. Hmm. Finally. I want to ask about the
0: broader fallout from this fight against inflation and, I guess, from this particular bank failure. I mean, are there any other financial institutions in the United States or elsewhere in the world that we should be thinking of as especially vulnerable to the rise in interest rates?
1: Well, if we start on the rather technical interest rate point, then the answer is there's a lot of pain out there because there are... You know, 23 trillion dollars of U.S. government debt out there, broadly speaking, and all of that has been devalued. Last year was the worst year ever in the history of the bond market. Huge losses. So there's pain out there. the The, the key word here is unrealized losses, because if you don't have to sell the bonds, you and you hold them to maturity, there's even an accounting clause you can invoke to park these assets on your balance sheet as not what's called non-marketable. In other words, you promise basically not to sell them until they reach maturity and then these are bonds, so they'll pay off in due course and then you'll get par, you'll get the full value of the bond back, so you will never actually make the loss. But allowing for these accounting fiddles, there is a lot of loss out there. I mean, at one point, I think the losses in the American banking system were estimated to be $620 billion. This is what really grabbed my attention at the end of last year. I think one of the very last newsletters I put out in 2022 was like, I'm sorry to bring you this news, folks, You know, <laughs> but there is this big chunk of loss sitting there. The The question is whether you have to sell. You only have to sell if you need liquidity, if you need cash quick, and you only need that as a bank if you're facing some sort of Liquidity run, and that's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. But if you look across the other American banks, Bank of America is the one that stands out as having particularly large losses. Barron's had a report saying they had losses up to about 120 billion unrealized. Important, and Bank of America is not facing a bank run. In fact, Silicon Valley depositors ran into Bank of America, put money into the bank. Um, But were it to come under pressure, it would be in real, it would be in real trouble. And there is, in case. Uh, In this particular, sorry, and there is an example of of that precise problem in the global financial system right now. In fact, in the interval between you drafting the questions for for this for this segment, Cam, and and, and us talking today, um, Credit Suisse has has gone into crisis. Now, Credit Suisse is the number two big global bank in Switzerland, next to UBS. Um, It was once in the top ten easily of global banks. And it has suffered a series of of scandals. It has suffered a series of um, regulatory issues. I mean, everything, you know, Bulgarian mafia, various other types of of accounting irregularity. It's really been a can of worms. And it's very high end clients because these two Swiss banks, um, you know, pride themselves as being a little bit like Silicon Valley Bank, you know, banks where very rich people put their money have paid the price. In other words, they have seen a very substantial over the course of the last six to 12 months, they saw a very substantial withdrawal of very large deposits. And at some point, then you face the question of where you're going to get liquidity, where you're going to get cash, and then they found themselves sitting on the large portfolio of bonds. And the Swiss National Bank, literally overnight from Wednesday to Thursday of this week, declared that it would provide liquidity to Credit Suisse. And what that means is exactly what the Treasury and the Fed are doing for The American banking system, which is to buy debt off their books, buy bonds off their books and give them cash in exchange to the tune in the order of like $50 billion is available just for this one bank for Credit Suisse. So the Swiss National Bank is not doing an American style general provision. It's doing a targeted bailout of that bank. It's the combination of a loss with the necessity of actually facing that loss, which is produced by a sudden liquidity squeeze that's the really... The really toxic element here. That's the kind of world we're in. And it's that combination we need to look out for. And yes, indeed, we have really seen one. And the confidence shock is operating now across the entire financial system. I think that's really what killed Credit Suisse this week.
0: And just to clarify, this is not a lack, loss of confidence in US bonds. Per se, right? I mean, people can still still manage to find buyers for the bonds. The bonds are valued at exactly what
1: you'd expect them to be valued at, given the interest rates. These are outstanding bonds. The new bonds that get issued come with the new and higher interest rates, so they're attractive. But this is a completely predictable effect of a dramatic increase in interest rates. And the thing about the bond market, we've often talked about this on the show, You know, It's one giant pool of bonds. They're differentiated internally, but they're moved by two basic parameters, the interest rate and the inflation rate. So it's not like with equities, which are shares in firms, where it's the difference between the firms that matters most. With bonds, especially government bonds, especially US government bonds, they're this relatively homogenous pool, gigantic, and it's oceanic in scale, and it's moved by these two parameters. And the interest rate last year moved by a shocking amount. And so that's why we've been asking this question. Bend or break, bend or break, mm-hmm. bend or break, bend or break. And here we are beginning to see big bits breaking.
0: Well, we'll be keeping an eye on this. I get a feeling that it won't be the last thing to bend, certainly, and yeah, maybe even break. So yeah, stick with us in the weeks ahead, and we'll be sure to update. But we have to leave it here for now. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos, it is produced by Laura Rossbrow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Two's but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe, and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us, that's at OnesandTwosPod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.